This is a Tuesdays with Merton bonus episode from the archives of the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University. In June of 2021, Andrew Prevo, Associate Professor of Theology at Boston College, presented a plenary address to the 17th General Meeting of the International Thomas Merton Society. His address was titled, Contemplation in Times of Crisis. And now, Dr. Andrew Prevo. It probably goes without saying that we live in a time of crisis. Although the COVID-19 pandemic is presently waning in the United States, thanks to the distribution of vaccines, it is still raging in many other parts of the world and has claimed as many as 4 million lives worldwide. It has exacerbated already deep racial and international inequalities. For many individuals, COVID-19 was an extra burden added to the top of an already high pile of troubles, having to do with physical and mental health challenges, strained relationships, financial instabilities and hardships, and in some cases, outright oppression. Black people who live in poor neighborhoods in this country face a daily risk of violence, both from criminal organizations uh, and from the police who whose supposed job is to prevent crime. Absurdly, whether their lives matter at all has become a topic of public debate. But even if one says Black Lives Matter and puts this message on social media or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, one is still unlikely to have workable solutions to the manifold problems that poor Black communities face. Meanwhile, the waters are rising. Each, Each summer is hotter than the last. Animal and plant species are being exterminated. Highly populated parts of the world are becoming unlivable. And we seem to lack the collective political will to make the needed changes. Christians are moreover complicit in all of these problems. It may either be comforting or disconcerting to recall that Thomas Merton lived in a time of crisis as well. His autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, begins in this way, quote, on the last day of January 1915, under the sign of the water bearer, in a year of great war, and down in the shadow of some French mountains on the borders of Spain, I came into the world. Free by nature, in the image of God, I was nevertheless the prisoner of my own violence and my own selfishness in the image of the world into which I was born. That world was the picture of hell, full of men like myself, loving God and yet hating him, born to love him, living instead in fear and hopeless self-contradictory hungers." The backdrop to Merton's infancy was the horror of the First World War, men in trenches being shot and blown to bits all in the name of some supposed national self-interest. Merton would also live through the Second World War in which he would lose his younger brother, John Paul, and the first decades of the so-called Cold War, which in fact became extremely hot and deadly and prolonged proxy wars throughout Latin America, Africa, and Asia. He witnessed extraordinary technological achievements that promised progress for society but also brought the threat of universal destruction, particularly through the proliferation of nuclear arms. 
in the United States where he spent most of his childhood and adult life, he observed the injustices of Jim Crow society, including not only segregation, but also lynching, political disenfranchisement, economic deprivation, and many other kinds of violent treatment in both the South and the North inflicted on people who were at the time called Negroes. He was inspired by the moral heroism of the civil rights movement and disheartened by the moral failings of many white Christians who refused its calls to conversion. In addition to deepening his dialogue with East Asian contemplative traditions, especially Zen Buddhism, he spent the last years of his life reflecting on the volatile racial conflicts of the 1960s. He wrote about the rise of black power movements, which filled him with some ambivalence. And he wrote about the reactionary responses to them by white Christian conservatives and liberals alike, which he condemned as cowardly and unchristian. Merton often used the Greek word kairos, which is prominent in the New Testament, to speak about a time of crisis that calls for a very significant decision. He once asked, quote, can, can Christians recognize their kairos? That is, are they capable of making bold and necessary choices to address the violent circumstances of their societies and of their own souls? Merton was not confident that Christians would be up to the task. Indeed, he had severe doubts. Even if they had the right doctrines in their mind, he understood that they were as a group and as individuals, not better than anyone else, just as prone to go through their lives with hardened hearts and depraved indifference to the suffering of others. Merton looked around and saw plainly that the world was a violent place. He believed that this violence started deep inside each of us and that Christians were no exception to that rule. He lamented this fact because he thought that Christians ought to know better and to do better. If they were actually living their faith consistently, they would be Christ-like in their actions and would revere the presence of Christ in others. They would recognize everyone immediately as a brother or sister, a fellow child of God, and approach them with a spirit of self-giving love. Instead, Merton saw Christians approaching fellow human beings with fear, hostility, and blatant disregard for their own and for others' humanity. In Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, Merton recounts an incident in which several white Catholics at a parish in New Orleans left the church during the middle of a homily. These regular churchgoers, faithful Catholics all, were outraged by the priest's suggestion that Jesus's command to love your neighbor as yourself disallowed their segregationist practices. In Merton's judgment, the lesson to be learned from this story is that, quote, one can think himself a good Catholic and be thought one by his neighbors and still be, in effect, an apostate from the Christian faith, end quote. According to Merton, anti-Black racism is a form of apostasy. It is an abdication of the sort of life that Christ demands that Christians live. Merton wanted to help his readers see that the time was running out for them to make a real choice for Christ and thus for a new way of living in deep communion and solidarity with one another. But he was not optimistic that they would heed his warning and embrace this Kairos moment. The central insight that I take from Merton's writings is that our social and political crises, 
such as war, racism, poverty, ecological destruction, and so forth and so on, are deeply rooted in our malformed spiritual lives. He is convinced that these crises must be addressed at this deeper level if we are ever going to make any real headway on them. He offers contemplation as a way to target the roots of the world's greatest problems. This perspective might seem simplistic or naive, especially given the moral failings of Christians and others who might claim to practice contemplation, failings of which Merton was painfully aware, as we have seen. Nevertheless, I believe there is some real truth in his thesis. And what follows uh, in my remarks this evening, I, I first clarify my understanding of what Merton means by contemplation and how he strives to balance tensions between the will and the intellect, solitude and society, eternity and history. I then discuss Merton's relationship with his brother, John Paul, whose untimely death created a personal crisis for Merton in the, the early years of his contemplative practice. I contend that this relationship may provide a clue to the sort of brotherly love that Merton argues is an essential feature of true contemplation. I show how this love shapes Merton's engagement with crises involving the unjust treatment of African Americans, which continue in new and familiar forms today. And I also suggest ways that it may be extended to address our contemporary ecological uh, disasters. All in all, I argue that contemplation, as Merton understands it, does have the potential to provide much of what this crisis-ridden world desperately needs. So in short, I think he's right, um, but we have to understand what he was really saying. So the first part of my talk here is called The Meaning and Tensions of Contemplation. In his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, Merton defines contemplation in general terms as, quote, a vivid realization of the fact that life and being in us proceed from an invisible, transcendent, and infinitely abundant source, end quote. A few pages later, he gives a more particular Christian definition, citing St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. He writes, quote, contemplation is the awareness and realization even in some sense experience of what each Christian obscurely believes. It is now no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. This is Galatians 2.20, Merton says that in contemplation, we discover our real selves, the quote, hidden and mysterious persons in whom we end quote. He adds that contemplation distinguishes this true God-given identity from our superficial or exterior selves, the egos that are products of our greed, pettiness, or pride. Contemplation is not primarily an activity on our part. It is not a skill to be acquired or an object to be possessed. It is the grace of God working within us, opening us to higher forms of consciousness, freedom, and love. Merton dedicated his life to this great mystery of contemplation. This dedication is made evident in one way by the fact that he chose to become a Cistercian of the strict observance, that is, a Trappist, joining the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane in central Kentucky in 1941. However, his writing about contemplation was not meant only for other monks, uh, whether they be Christian or not. 
nor was his goal merely to attract others to his monastic way of life. He was interested in helping lay persons, Christians or otherwise, grow in awareness of the divine presence that was already within them. Merton's belief in this universal but also very deeply personal and intimate divine presence follows logically from his belief in the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation. He writes, quote, for in becoming man, God became not only Jesus Christ, but also potentially every man and woman that ever existed. In Christ, God became not only this man, but also in a broader and more mystical sense, yet no less truly every man, end quote. Although monks like Merton are empowered to focus on contemplation in a particular way because of their vocation, contemplation is in fact meant for everyone. It is a gift of union between God and the human soul, which is accomplished in Christ, and which calls to each of us in whatever concrete circumstances we may find ourselves. Although contemplation includes a more vibrant and life-giving awareness of God, it does not turn God into a comprehensible object or render the contemplative omniscient. It is as much an experience of not knowing as it is of knowing because one's finite intellect simply cannot contain the infinite divine wellspring that overflows within. Nevertheless, Merton proceeds with caution here. He insists that true contemplation is not anti-intellectual. He is worried about the threat of a false mysticism, perceptible in the frenzied political movements of national socialism and totalitarian communism, which abandons the intellect in favor of, quote, a blind life force or power considered sometimes as beyond man, sometimes as within himself, end quote. Following John of the Cross and other daring mystics of the dark night, Merton associates the perfection of contemplation with a state of pure love that greatly surpasses what any earthly reason can understand. At the same time, as a very careful student of Thomas Aquinas, Merton also stresses that this is a state of love and not mere blind will, and that such love is inseparable from a gift of divine wisdom and a life of well-ordered well habitual holiness. Merton is highly critical of any religious, political, or erotic enthusiasm that would prize ecstatic experience for its own sake and untether it from the concrete ways of life that Christ teaches us to follow and that we also learn uh, to obey through our consciences and through the natural law. In addition to holding the tensions between intellect and will in the mystery of love, Merton also argues that true contemplation must maintain a close bond between solitude and society. He says, quote, physical solitude, exterior silence, and real recollection are all morally necessary for anyone who wants to lead a contemplative life. But he adds that, quote, we do not go into the desert to escape people, but to learn how to find them, end quote. By filling us with divine love, contemplation frees us to share this love with others and to find this love already radiant in them. Excuse me if I keep quoting Merton at length, but he has such a way with words, especially on this topic. He writes, quote, the more we are alone, the more we are together. And the more we are in society, the, the true society of charity, not of cities and crowds, the more we are alone with Christ. For in my soul and in your soul, I find the same Christ who is our life. 
and he finds himself in our love, and together we all find paradise, which is the sharing of his love for his Father in the person of their spirit. The other passage I want to, to reproduce in this context is a famous one describing an experience Merton had on the corner of 4th and Walnut. After his most memorable line, uh, there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. He adds, quote, this changes nothing in the sense and value of my solitude. For it is in fact a function of solitude to make one realize such things with a clarity that would be impossible to anyone completely immersed in other cares, the other illusions, and all the automatisms of a tightly collective existence. My solitude, however, is not my own, for I see now how much it belongs to them, and that I have a responsibility for it in their regard, not just in my own. It is because I am one with them that I owe it to them to be alone. And when I am alone, they are not they, but my own self. There are no strangers, he adds with an exclamation point. Therefore, it is quite clear that any pursuit of contemplation that amounted to a mere practice of navel-gazing or self-absorption would be counted a failure on Merton's ground, on Merton's grounds. To find God within is to find the truer version of ourselves that does not relate to others with self-interested motives or, or recoil from them out of fear, but rather uh, relates to them with deep warmth and understanding and Christ-like commitment. Finally, true contemplation is distinguished for Merton by its concrete grappling with history. Although he acknowledges the eternity of God, he also emphasizes that Christianity is, quote, the salvation of man in and through history, through temporal decisions made for Christ, the Redeemer and Lord of history, end quote. Merton argues that there are kairos moments which test and reveal the extent to which one has let the love of God reinvigorate one's interior life and transform it from a hardened condition of sin to a liberated condition of grace. The seeds of contemplation are planted by every historical experience one undergoes, and the question is only whether one will let them grow and bear fruit. That is, when the time of decision comes, when one has to take a stand against violence and injustice, and perhaps even risk one's life struggling for a more peaceful society, will one make the right choice? Will one's soul have become so verdant and fresh, so alive with divine compassion, that it will freely respond in the just and courageous ways that it must? Or will it rather shrivel and cower and become lifeless? As long as we exist in this world, contemplation does not relieve us of the burden uh, to wrestle with historical crises. On the contrary, it compels us to face them head on. So that's my understanding basically of what Merton means by contemplation and the various tensions that he tries to hold as he theorizes it. The next and uh, more substantive part of my talk is called the crises and metamorphoses of fraternal love. Merton learns this lesson about the inescapable historical context of contemplation in a very poignant way through his relationship with his brother, John Paul. Memories of his brother are scattered throughout the uh, autobiography. He talks about summers on Long Island in the mid-1930s when John Paul was home from school 
and they, quote, had nothing to do but go swimming and hang around the house playing hot records, end quote. They would walk to the movies and see whatever was showing, however dismal in quality it may have been. He talks about visiting John Paul at college several years later. His brother was a student at Cornell in Ithaca, New York. At this point, Merton had already developed a deep Catholic faith and was planning to join the Franciscan order, though this plan would ultimately come to naught. In any case, he recalls that on this trip to visit his brother, uh, his brother, who was not yet a believer, but a somewhat restless and spiritually curious young man, accompanied him daily to Mass. He talks about how his brother drove around in an old dusty Buick, decided to take a spontaneous road trip to Mexico in order to photograph Mayan temples, and ended up investing in a cattle ranch. Both brothers were trying to find themselves. As fighting in the Second World War intensified, Merton received a medical deferral from the local draft board and finally resolved to become a monk at Gethsemane. His brother had already joined the Royal Canadian Air Force and was preparing to go to war. Before John Paul shipped out, he visited Thomas at the Abbey and expressed a desire to be baptized. Merton gave him a very quick catechesis and he was received into the church. The next day he departed and they would never see each other again. John Paul sadly was killed in action. Merton commemorated his brother with what is perhaps his finest and most personal poem, which I will read to you now. Quote, Sweet brother, if I do not sleep, my eyes are flowers for your tomb. And if I cannot eat my bread, my fasts shall live like willows where you die. If in the heat I find no water for my thirst, my thirst shall turn to springs for you, poor traveler. Where, in what desolate and smoky country, lies your poor body, torn and dead? And in what landscape of disaster has your unhappy spirit lost its road? Come, in my labor find a resting place, and in my sorrows lay your head. Or rather, take my life and blood and buy yourself a better bed. Or take my breath and take my death and buy yourself a better rest. When all the men of war are shot and flags have fallen into dust, your cross and mine shall tell men still Christ died on each for both of us. For in the wreckage of your April, Christ lies slain and Christ weeps in the ruins of my spring. The money of whose tears shall fall into your weak and friendless hand and buy you back to your own land. The silence of whose tears shall fall like bells upon your alien tomb. Hear them and come, they call you home. Merton's choice to become a monk may have partly indicated a desire on his part to flee the, violent, to flee the violence of the world. But his brother's death proved that he could not escape the pain and chaos all around him even in the apparent safety of his monastic cell. This violence touched Merton deeply because he and his brother were one. Merton's insomnia, hunger, thirst, labors, sorrows, blood, breath, life, and death belonged to John Paul. That's what he says in this poem. He believed that he and his brother, even in their suffering, were intimately united in Christ crucified. 
Merton's contemplation teaches him that the intensity of this fraternal bond is something that he can and must share with all of God's children all over the world in whatever walk of life, no matter their race, religion, or nationality. His love for his fallen brother is a paradigm for love as such. His young adult anxiety about what to do with his life was a crisis that only resolved when he found the peace that came from accepting his monastic vocation. But after he embraced this calling, the death of his brother and his own survival became another crisis for him, another time of decision that would require him to respond, another Kairos moment. His question now was how to awaken the divine love that was already buried like a seed in the hearts of each of us. How to let this love grow so strong and unshakable that the brother killing violence of this world would finally cease. In Merton's writings on racism, he quotes a line from the first letter of John, quote, but whoever possesses this world's goods and notices his brother in need and shuts his heart against him, how can the love of God remain in him? This is from 1 John 3.17. The fact that Merton uses this biblical line to characterize black people as brothers seems significant to me given everything that he has written about his love for his own biological brother. Merton is arguing that white Christians, in order to be truly Christian, must love black people as intensely as they would love a beloved sibling in need. He contends that therefore, quote, the white Christian cannot in such a situation be content merely to march with his black brother at the risk of getting his head broken or of being shot, end quote. Even this seemingly heroic self-sacrificial act of marching together is just a start, according to Merton's powerful fraternal logic. The problem, he continues, is, quote, to eradicate this basic violence and injustice from white society, end quote. That is, if one's own beloved brother were being abused, one would not stop with mere symbolic acts of protest, however risky they might be. One would struggle tirelessly until the deepest causes of the abuse were addressed, and it finally stopped. One's level of personal commitment and involvement would be unrelenting and unquestionable. Merton's consciousness about problems of racial injustice was raised before he became a monk. While he was teaching English at St. Bonaventure College in 1940 and 41, he attended a lecture by the Baroness Catherine de Hewick Doherty, a Catholic laywoman who operated a friendship house in Harlem to serve the needs of the predominantly black population. The Baroness argued that communists were making inroads into the black community in Harlem because they were actually doing the works of mercy that Catholics and other Christians should have been doing. The communists were treating black people like true brothers and sisters, making sure they had food, shelter, healthcare, and education, and fighting for their civil rights. Catholics, by and large, were doing none of these things. Merton was morally convicted by this lecture, and he decided to spend several weeks working with Baroness, the Baroness in Harlow. His account of what he experienced is, on the one hand, full of compassion and righteous anger, and on the other hand, perhaps somewhat condescending and stigmatizing by modern day standards. 
Nevertheless, the historian of African-American religion, Albert Roberto, notes that this description of suffering in the black community had a profound impact on the Black Panther leader, Eldridge Cleaver. Merton writes, quote, here in this huge, dark, steaming slum, hundreds of thousands of Negroes are herded together like cattle, most of them with nothing to eat and nothing to do. In this huge cauldron, inestimable natural gifts, wisdom, love, music, science, poetry are all stamped down and left to boil within the dregs of an elementally corrupted nature. And thousands and upon thousands of souls are destroyed by vice and misery and degradation, obliterated, wiped out, washed from the register of the, liver, of the living, dehumanized, end quote. Merton concludes that the condition of Harlem is a sign of divine judgment against the greed and prejudices of a wealthy and no less vicious white society. This point is fair enough, but his bleak depiction of Harlem leaves little room to appreciate the complex moral freedoms and strivings of the black people whom he paints with such a broad brush. Even as he laments their plight, he represents them as almost subhuman objects of fear. Two decades later, in the early 1960s, Merton more helpfully identifies fear as the very root of the problem. After reading James Baldwin, he says that white races have, quote, a certain fear of the Negro, which he describes as, quote, a quasi-mystical obsession with a black demon waiting in the bushes to rape the virginal white daughters of the Old South, end quote. Such, as, such a sexualized Negrophobia is a false mysticism. It is a violent pseudo-spirituality. It is a demonic type of ecstasy governed by affective power rather than by love or reason. And it is, it is the greatest impediment to any meaningful practice of uh, interracial brotherhood or solidarity. Merton argues that true contemplation is the only antidote to such Negrophobia, the sort of contemplation that would enable a white Christian to see black people not as objects of fear, but as their brothers and sisters in Christ. But Merton goes a step further. He argues that to contemplate the true and living God, it is necessary to listen to Negro spirituals and freedom songs, and to read black literature by the likes of Baldwin and William Melvin Kelly. He says that these works, quote, tell us that it is the Negro who hears the true voice of God in history and interprets it rightly, end quote. Merton thinks that such an openness to the presence of God and the cultural artifacts of the black freedom struggle is a crucial step toward exercising the demons from the hearts and structures of a white supremacist country. He is quite insistent on this point, quote, the white man has lost his power to hear any voice other than his own inner demon who urges him to preserve the status quo at any price, however desperate, however iniquitous, and however cruel. The white man's readiness to destroy the world rather than change it is dictated by this inner demon, which he cannot recognize, but which the Negro clearly identifies." End quote. To be sure, Merton drew distinctions between different black sources. He did not think the voice of God resonated equally in all of them. He preferred the nonviolent Christian resistant movement of Martin Luther King Jr. to the overtly anti-Christian and anti-white rhetoric of Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. Nevertheless, Merton found much to value in Malcolm X's autobiography, 
and it interpreted Malcolm's pilgrimage to Mecca as a turning point, which opened him up to a more holistic sense of God's presence in the world. Although Merton worried that the black power leaders of the late 1960s might provoke forms of chaotic and counterproductive violence, he viewed this as symptomatic of a more comprehensive problem of violence plaguing the country. He was mindful of the fact that the U.S. had never really come to terms with its history of slavery, and that the U.S. military was presently dropping bombs and killing civilians in Vietnam. He thought all of this was connected. He was less critical of black nationalists than he was of white Christians who either resisted King's efforts or who naively viewed them as sufficient, as if everything had already been taken care of by the 1964 Civil Rights Act and as if there were no further need for black protest. Merton thought that the violence in urban slums and foreign rice fields started with white American Christians who had never dealt with the racist fears in their own hearts, who had never opened themselves up to the prospect of genuine brotherly relationships with black people or other subjugated peoples throughout the world, and who therefore remained captive to a false and sinful version of themselves that only true contemplation had the power to unlock. In a recent essay, Gregory Hillis documents Merton's friendly correspondence with a black Catholic priest from Louisiana named uh, August Thompson, who had spoken out against racial injustice in the church. In his letters to Thompson, Mer Merton wholeheartedly supports his prophetic witness and calls for, quote, a sincere, honest, and unequivocal love for black people in the Catholic church. Without this, Merton says, the church will fail to communicate the gospel. At the same time, he counsels even Thompson to be on guard against, quote, the violence in his own heart, suggesting that, quote, the courage that is without violence is the greatest of all because it relies completely on God, end quote. Merton viewed black people not merely as recipients of others' love, uh, but as human beings who must practice it themselves. Um, so just as he might challenge his brother to grow in faith and love, so too, he challenged Thompson. More than 50 years later, African Americans are still not approached with the passionate fraternal love that Merton argued they deserve. Black businesses and properties are consistently undervalued. Predominantly black schools are underfunded. The wealth gap between white and black Americans remains stagger staggeringly high. While many black neighborhoods continue to be segregated and cut off from many benefits of infrastructure, such as highways and subways. There are also new problems of gentrification uh, that make rents unaffordable and lead to displacements of families. Water sources in some black communities remain poisonous. Access to healthcare, including mental healthcare, is often unreliable and its, and its quality is often deficient. Incarceration rates for nonviolent offenders are disproportionately high there are persistent problems of police brutality, including police shootings of unarmed black men, women, and children, uh, which have been published, publicized, and frequent miscarriages of criminal justice in the courts. Uh, but there's also problems of violence on the streets uh, that, that don't go noticed in the papers. Uh, there are xenophobic hate crimes uh, against uh, uh, other people of color, and white supremacist terrorist organizations are on the rise. Um, our former president, Donald Trump, had a well-documented history of white supremacist attitudes, remarks, and policies, but this did not deter millions of Christians from voting for him. 
While inheriting the legacies of civil rights and black power movements of the 1960s, new nonviolent activist movements such as Black Lives Matter have raised awareness and sought political and cultural reforms around a number of these issues. This new style of racial activism has tended to be neither Christian nor anti-Christian, neither religious nor secular. It occupies a liminal space of variously defined spiritual and material strivings, and it is arguably filling a moral vacuum left by religious institutions that have recently shown little leadership on matters of racial justice. If Merton were writing today, he would undoubtedly urge white Christians to discern the loving presence of God in such a movement. He would ask them to incorporate the grassroots struggles for black lives into the intellectual, social, and historical fabric of their practice of contemplation. And he would insist that the very state of their souls, whether of grace or sin, truth or falsity, goodness or evil, depended on it. He would not condemn white Christians simply for being white, as if the external features of their bodies sealed their fate. Rather, he would invite them to discover and grow into truer versions of themselves. He would ask them to let their hearts and minds be filled with a Christ-like love for all of God's precious children, so that, they might be, so that they might recognize the presence of Christ in their black brothers and sisters and join together with them in their struggle. According to Merton, even the most catastrophic and world-shattering forms of violence are rooted in the selfish fears, desires, and choices of particular egos, which are clinging tightly to themselves instead of opening themselves up to the immeasurable possibilities of divine love. Although he recognized that the racism of the U.S. was structural in nature, he also argued that it was a crisis for the soul of each person who had the opportunity and obligation to do something about it. After all, who's creating these structures? Who's profiting from them? Who's running them? Uh, Merton viewed the answer, the problems as deeply heart-centered problems as well as the solutions. Beyond the national problem of racism, which of course also had international dimensions, uh, the type of violence that was most existentially troubling to Merton in his lifetime was the threat of nuclear war. This was an apocalyptic violence which could destroy every living creature on earth. Its potential scope was truly global. And yet he thought its roots, it, its roots also lied in each one of us. It was our own inner violence which we might choose either to unleash or to overcome. Only love, he wrote, can exercise the fear, which is the root of all war. And he thought that this same love was the only real answer to the world-destroying power of the nuclear arms race. Today, I suspect, he would say that this same love is, once again, our only hope against environmental catastrophe. The issue is not just warming temperatures, which might make summers more uncomfortable. The problems have to do with temperatures so hot, especially in equatorial regions, that human life becomes unlivable. Massive flooding of low-lying coastal cities and villages throughout the world, the displacement of millions of people who will lose their homes and have nowhere to go, the increased severity of hurricanes, blizzards, wildfires, and droughts, which will mean greater loss of human life, destruction of habitats, and threats of extinction for many animal and plant species, including some like bees who are crucial for our survival, and dangerously increased levels of political 
and economic instability worldwide. These impacts will be felt especially by poorer and more racially marginalized communities who already suffer from higher rates of pollution and water and food scarce, scarcity. Whether it is best to talk about these problems in apocalyptic terms is a disputed question. The damage in this case does not happen in an instant like a nuclear blast. What we are witnessing is a gradual yet accelerating deterioration of life-sustaining relationships between humans, animals, and their environments. Some forms of this damage, once they occur, are irreversible, and so there is a certain tragic finality to them. But the other point I want to make is that without the sort of ecological conversion imagined by Pope Francis, the world will continue on a path toward its own destruction. And so the crisis we are facing is truly apocalyptic. The violence within us is severing our ties with the living things around us. And it is as if we are no longer concerned to find a harmonious way to exist within the beautiful whole that is God's creation. I was pondering our ecological crisis while reading through Merton's collected poems, and I was struck by his love for the natural world around him. Contemplation was for Merton not merely a way to connect with other human beings as brothers and sisters, but also a way to experience intimate bonds with animals, plants, mountains, fields, rains, winds, and all kinds of natural phenomena. Let, let me read you another poem uh, of his, this one called In the Rain and the Sun. Watch out for this peeled door light. Here, without rain, without shame, my noonday dusk made spots upon the walk. Tall drops pelted the concrete with their jewelry, belonging to the old world's bones. Owning this view, in the air of a hermit's weather, I count the fragmentary rain and drops as blue as coal until I plumb the shadows full of thunder. My prayers supervise the atmosphere till storms call all hounds home. Out of the towers of water, four or five mountains come walking to see the little monk's graves. Flying the neutral stones, I dwell between cedars and see the countries sleeping in their beds, lands of the watermen where poplars bend. Wild seas amuse the world with water, no end to all the surfs that charm our shores. Fattening uh, the sands with their old foam and their old roar. Thus in the boom of waves advantage, dogs and lions come to my tame home, won by the bells of my Cistercian jungle, Oh, love the livid fringes in which their robes are drenched. Songs of the lions and whales, with my pen between my fingers, making the water world sing. Sweet Christ, discover diamonds and sapphires in my verse, while I, I burn the sap of my pine house for praise of the ocean sun. I have walked upon the whole day's surf, rinsing thy bays with hymns, my eyes have swept horizons clean of ships and rain. Upon lacquered swells, my feet no longer run. Sliding all over the sea, I come to the hap of a slippery harbor. Dogs have gone back to their ghosts and then many lions home, but words fling wide the windows of their houses. Adam and Eve walk down my coast, praising the tears of the treasurer's son. 
I hang thy rubies on these autumn trees, on the bones of the home-going thunder. So I do not know how exactly to parse every line of this poem, but its joyful attention to the beauty of creation is unmistakable. The poem is wet and spacious and alive. These are not the words of someone who would turn away in apathy as the world is disfigured into an unlivable wasteland. This is a poem of one who, like St. Francis of Assisi, wishes to praise God with all of creation. Scholars of Merton who have studied this aspect of his thought more than I have confirm my intuition that Merton would see contemplation as a crucial part of the remedy we need, not only for our ongoing racial crises, but also for our intensifying ecological ones. Dan Haran uh, discusses what he calls Merton's paradise consciousness. That is Merton's contemplative awareness of divine goodness and beauty in the natural world and argues that it is, it is connected with St. Francis's celebration of other creatures, not as instruments to be used for human benefit, but as brothers and sisters in their own right. Christopher Primuk draws inspiration from Merton's 1968 journal called Woods, Shore, Desert, which contains vivid accounts and photographs of his ecological surroundings as he traveled through California and New Mexico shortly before that fateful trip to Asia uh, in which he died. Premick associates Merton closely with Pope Francis's teachings on integral ecology in Laudato Si. Monica Weiss uh, explains how Merton's 1963, 1963 exchange with Rachel Carson, the environmentalist author of Silent Spring, helped him grow not only in his love of the natural world, but also in his awareness of the threats it faced from chemicals such as DDT and from larger technocratic forces. In short, contemplation ought to help us experience our inner oneness and interdependence, not only with other human beings who differ from us racially or in many other ways, but also with the whole of creation. Is contemplation the answer to our greatest crises? That idea seems wildly implausible only because it is, it is so profoundly misunderstood. Contemplation is falsely juxtaposed with concrete social analysis and activism. Contemplation is depicted as passive navel gazing, a kind of self-absorption that does nothing for anyone else and perhaps not even for those who practice it. But Merton's fundamental point, which I find persuasive, is that our embodied souls are the primary channels through which violence enters this world. And yet at the same time, these very same embodied souls are capable of becoming living vessels of God's peace, justice, and love. Contemplation is the possibility of that transformation. Nothing stands in the way of tender fraternal relationships with other human beings and other non-human creatures, except our own entrenched resistance to them and our refusal to be the beacons of divine grace that we already inchoately are. Thank you very much.